0: Welcome to the Tomball Bible Church podcast. We exist to glorify Jesus Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. To find out more, visit us online at tomballbible.church. Well, you can turn to John. We're picking back up in the Gospel of John today. Turn to chapter 3 in your Bibles. We left off last time. With just John three sixteen, that's the only verse we looked at. But if you're looking at your Bibles, then that verse you'll recognize begins a paragraph. It's embedded in a complete thought. It's the intro to a complete thought. Uh, And remember, in John sixteen through twenty one, that those verses may not be red letters. There's cultural or not cultural, rather theological debate about who said these, whether Jesus or was it the Apostle John. But I think it's John commenting on what Jesus did in the dialogue with Nicodemus in verses 1 through 15. Now, what we're tasked with today with doing is most central to Bible study, and that is reading a verse in its given context. We're going to look at John 3.16 in a context, and that becomes particularly important, reading verses in context as students of the Bible, when the verse is well-known when it is uh, popular on its own. Let me tell you an example. When, when I was in sixth grade, uh, we were playing football, and our quarterback's name was Wes Gideon, and his mom was a fiery Pentecostal lady. And we were walking for the second time, second go-around to play this team called Allen Academy, and the, the previous game, they, they run-ruled us. You didn't know you could get run-ruled in junior high football, but you can. We got they ended the game in the third quarter. It was so terrible. So we're playing them again, and we're walking up with our helmets and shoulder pads and walking through the line, and Miss Gideon is there, Wes's mom, saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things, I mean, to every player. Looked them in the eyes and said that. And that put me as a 12-year-old in a theological quandary because I was like, Miss Gideon, there ain't no way we're beating this team. But I know that the Bible says that. I was in a pickle to dealing with that. So we need to know those verses in context, because Philippians 4:13 that she was quoting has a context, and it's not sixth- grade football. It's something far grander that the Apostle Paul was talking about. John 3:16, no different. We can't detach it from verses 1 through 15, the story of Nicodemus, and we certainly can't pull it out of and lift it from the paragraph that it is in, because John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote these words in this order for a reason. He did it on purpose. So we need to do the work of understanding God and how he meant to be understood in this passage. So we're going to look at 16 through 21. Here's the the summary of the passage before we read it. The summary of the passage is this. God sent his son for two tasks, to deliver and to distinguish, to save and to separate. When God sent his son, the son delivers all who believe in him, And by the Son's sheer entrance into humanity, he distinguishes from the saved and the condemned. Just by showing up, he does that. He distinguishes between those who have come to the light and those who cling to the darkness. Look at this passage. We're going to read the whole thing real quick. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So this morning we're going to look at these things that God sent his son and that God sent his son for two reasons to deliver and to distinguish to save and to separate. So look at verse 16. John 3.16, we looked at it a few weeks ago, that God did indeed give his own son into the world and the sole motivation for that was love. There could not be possibly any other motivation for God to send his son, to give his son. The son was given by the father to the world. Now look at verse 17. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, and then it goes on from there, but it's speaking about God sending his son. Verse 17, God sent his son. We have the idea here in the Gospel of John that God sent his son into the world. Now, that idea seems very commonplace and very accepted to us, but this is a big idea, that God's sending the son, but Jesus is God. God's sending God is what we're looking at. And Jesus refers to himself often as the sent one. Let me just run through the Gospel of John and just show you how prevalent this idea, this concept is. John 5 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Verse 38, and you do not have this word abiding in you for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Look at chapter six, verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Verse 57, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. Chapter 7, verse 29. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. John 8, 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I, ha- I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And then John eleven forty-two. 42. I knew that you always hear me, that I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And then 17.3, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then 20.21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so... I'm sending you. There is a very real sense that we can see from the Gospel of John that the Father sent the Son. Now, if we pause and think on that, then we could have a couple of questions that could be pretty problematic if we don't answer them. Does Jesus, the idea of Jesus being sent, does that mean that he would not have come unless God the Father made him come? Well, no, that's not true. From John 10, 17 through 18. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one... Takes it from me, the Father. No one, but I've laid it down on my own accord. I, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Well, does this then mean that Jesus being sent by the Father does that mean that he's subservient to the Father, like some kind of divine errand boy? Is that what the, this concept is saying? No, doesn't mean that at all. Because John ten thirty says, "I and the Father are one, one and the same." both God, equally God, with the Holy Spirit. So it doesn't mean that he's subservient in any way. Now, doesn't mean that Jesus, the Son, has no love himself for the people of God. He's just merely a messenger of God's, of the Father's love. That God loves them, and so then, then he sent the Son who was kind of ambivalent, kind of just neutral to the whole idea. No, well, that's not true either. John 13, verse 1, now... Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus did have, does have love for the people of God, not just God the Father, but he does. You see, the reality of the Father sending the Son connotes two things. It connotes authority and it connotes authenticity to Jesus. See, all prophets and apostles in the Bible... Were, were said and understood to have been sent by God. I mean, the word apostle in Greek, apostolos, means sent one. That's what it literally means, the sent one. So then all the apostles and the prophets, they had the authority of God when they spoke his word. It would be no different for Jesus at all. The, the people were and still are expected to receive the words of the apostles and the prophets recorded in the scriptures as God's word, authoritatively the word of God, what God intends to communicate to people. The phrase in the Old Testament prophets of, thus says the Lord, that's authority. God is saying this. It may be my vocal cords cutting up air as it goes through my windpipe, but they are God's words. They're not mine. Thus says the Lord. That displays their God-given authority. And those apostles and those prophets, they're just types and shadows of Jesus. They're just precursors, just forerunners, of Jesus. So how much more then is it true that Jesus himself has authority as the sent one of God? He comes with God's authority. But the key difference between Jesus, one of the key differences between Jesus, the apostles and the prophets, is that everything that Jesus says is the word of God. Some of the things that Jeremiah said were the word of God. Some of the things that Paul said were the word of God. Everything that Jesus says is the word of God because he is God sent to us. And secondly, this idea of being sent authenticates Jesus in some sense. See, in order for Moses to be authenticated, what did he have to do? He had to turn a bunch of sticks into cobras. He had to see part the Red Sea. He had to hit a rock and water come out of it for the people to believe, okay, you really are the man of God. You really are sent from God. What did, uh, what did Elijah have to do to be authenticated as uh, the man of God? He had to resurrect this dead widow's son and make sure that her oil jar never ran out. I mean, obviously God doing that miraculously through them, but he had to be identified, authenticated by doing those kinds of things. Paul had to heal the sick and and resurrect a kid who fell from a third story window and died to be like, okay, yeah, you are God's man. Like you you are sent from God. We believe it. All Jesus has to do is speak to be authenticated because he is the word. Remember John 1, 1? In the beginning was the word. He is the word that authenticates him as the one come from God, as very God of very God. The son being described as sin, it just means that he is authentically God on earth in human flesh that came to real flesh and blood people, people like you and me. And as verse 19 says, that he is the light that has come into the world, the light that, is, that when our light authenticates and makes known what is true. So now it's clear that God has sent the Son, the second member of the Trinity, did indeed enter into humanity. That's what we're seeing here. We've seen it for three chapters now, and we just celebrated that a, a second greatest of all miracles over the holiday. Christmas, the incarnation, the sent one. But what was he sent to do? What was, he, what was the objective in him coming that first time? We know he's coming again. We need to examine that. He came to deliver and to distinguish. He came to save and to separate. Look at verse 16. We're going to look at first the, the son being sent to deliver and to save. Verse 16, whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, does not perish but has eternal life. John is saying this, that this, this Jesus, the same Jesus that was just talking to Nicodemus in the first 15 verses, that Jesus was given so that everyone who believes in him will have have delivered from eternal death and given into eternal life. God's love for the world is made manifest by Jesus being sent into it. And he came the first time to bring eternal life to all who would believe. He was sent to deliver the elect of God from perishing. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now see, now we have a further expounding on verse 16. Here in verse 17, and John does this through an affirmation and denial. That's kind of a church history practice picked up from right biblical authors like John, that you assert what you believe in the affirmative, and then you deny its opposite in the negative. So you would say, well, we believe this, but then we deny these other things as well. So what John is saying is that God did not send his son into the world this time to condemn He sent him this time that he might be saved through him. comes right out of the Gospel of John, that whole idea of affirmations and denials. And when the Son took on flesh and was incarnated as truly man, that was not a coming of condemnation, meaning he did not come in Bethlehem and at Calvary to judge, to judge eternally. His first coming was not to eradicate all evil finally, His first coming was to herald the future coming of the eradication of all evil and the judgment of all evil. He came at Bethlehem and he came at Calvary to save. He came at his birth and his death and resurrection to save, to accomplish true atonement for human sin. Eternal deliverance was achieved by him at his first advent for everybody who came before him who believed and everybody who comes after him who believes. In verse 18, the first phrase says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Belief in Jesus is how God saves sinners. And that's the first thing that he was sent to do. Jesus said himself, Luke 19, 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to deliver and to save. That's not all he came to do. See, here's where our lack of concern for context can get us into trouble. There's a manner in which we can read verses 16 and verses 17 and come away with a contorted view of Jesus and of the gospel itself. We could read those two verses and go, See, Jesus is all about love and acceptance. Jesus doesn't judge or condemn anyone. He's all about love and all about giving. Jesus is pure love without any discrimination. You can read those two verses and come away with an understanding like that. But if you read the whole gospel of John, you can't come away with that understanding. Chapter 9, verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. So we got to consider the whole of God's word as a unit. And we need to understand the person of Jesus, person and work of Jesus Christ, as it's explained in every verse of the Bible, not just the ones that seem to play well in public. So the context of 3.16-21 through 21 will give us a true understanding of the, of the Father, of the Son, of humanity, of sin, and of the gospel. But also verse 16 and 17 will too, if you actually read them, if we actually take the time to read them. What does verse 16 say? Whoever believes in him will not perish, so that means everybody is perishing. You will not if you believe. In verse 17, why does the world need to be saved? Verse 17, like the world might be saved through him. But what does being saved absolutely mean that you were prior? You were in peril. That's what these verses say to us. I mean, I mean think about it like this. If the EMTs arrive on the scene of a man clutching his chest on the ground, motionless. Do you as a bystander say, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Are you here to give this guy a heart attack or save this guy from a heart attack? I want to know what you're doing here. We we wouldn't say any of that. The guy's having a heart. He's already in peril. So the EMTs there, they can only be there for one reason, is to save. That's why they're there. The majority of this paragraph is about the distinguishing and not the delivering about the separating and not the saving. Just it takes six verses. The first two are really about the saving and the delivering. The next four, two thirds, are about the distinguishing. Verse eighteen. Look at this. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he does not has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Remember the illustration that Jesus used. In verse 14, Son of Man being lifted up like a bronze serpent, all of the people were already snake bit. You're, you're already intoxicated with poison. That, that's the current status that you have. Jesus didn't come to inject anyone with eternally condemning toxin. You already have that coursing through your veins. The, the bronze serpent wasn't lifted up to make sure everybody knows, or to give everybody, rather, the poison of those fiery serpents, but to save them from it because they already had it. That's what verse 18 is talking about. Con- condemnation is not something that Jesus has to bestow upon anyone. God doesn't have to bestow that on anyone. Everyone is born condemned. See, sometimes I think that I, and I know that others, we view people as neutral, that, that everybody's just... A guest on The Price is Right, and you're standing at the podium and you have door number one, which leads to heaven, door number two, which leads to hell, and you're just hoping that everybody shakes it out and chooses door number one. But that's not anybody's state, according to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 says that everybody's already in door number two. It just hasn't been closed all the way yet. And what's being offered to you is entrance into door number one. Nobody's neutrally looking at both options because John 3.18 says that they are condemned already. John 3.36 says the same thing. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and that is true. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Full stop. But there's a semicolon. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, comma, why Because the wrath of God remains on him. It was already there. You're not in peril of incurring the wrath of God. If you die in unbelief, you're under it right now. If you are in a position of unbelief, it's already on you. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you trust in him, then the wrath of God comes off of you. It's removed from you because it was put on Jesus at the cross it comes off of you but if you don't believe it remains on you that you and i are born under the wrath of god that's the state we are we are come into the world in we're not neutral people asking other neutral people to make the right choice we as christians in the church are living people pleading with dead people to choose christ to place their faith in him as the only hope of salvation the only other door So here is what Christ does. Look at verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We've seen this language before, right? Chapter 1, John talks about Jesus coming in as the light of man, and the darkness did not overcome it. He used that imagery before, the light and the dark, and he's going to use that throughout the whole gospel. And he's going to expand on it further here in this moment, but we have to pause and say, wait a minute. Didn't it just say that Jesus did not come to judge? What's this pronouncement of judgment in verse 19? And this is the judgment? I thought we weren't doing that yet. Jesus didn't come to condemn because everyone is already condemned. This word judgment here, judgment and all the words, if you have an ESV that say condemn, all from the same root word, krino or krisis in Greek, And it can be translated here in verse 19 as either verdict or decision. Here are the facts. Here's what God has handed down. That's what verse 19 is saying. This really is the answer to question 18. Why don't they believe? Because verse 18 is saying, whoever believes is not condemned. Whoever doesn't believe is condemned. Why don't they believe? Verse 19 says that they don't believe in Jesus. They don't come into the light because they love their sin. They love the darkness. That's why. It, it, what, is, what does darkness do, or what does light do in a dark room? It exposes the truth. That's what it does. Now, if you have little kids, and you choose to walk through the living room in the dark, cover of darkness in the middle of the night barefoot, what's going to happen? You are going to step on a Lego, and it is going to be immovably lodged in the crook of your foot for the rest of your life. That's what's gonna happen. You choose to do that. But what happens if you had turned on the lights? The truth would have been exposed that your living room floor is a cornucopia of torture devices masquerading as children's toys. I mean, why why do we put little lights in the little boys' bathrooms at night so that they know the toilet is here and not here? The light exposes the truth. That's what it does. So when Jesus, the light, comes into the world, it exposes everyone. Everyone is revealed to be who they really are. We're revealed to to show that we love what we really love, and the reason that everyone who remains in unbelief doesn't come to Christ, according to verse nineteen, is because they love their sin and they hate Jesus. What does it say? The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness. They loved sin rather than the light, because their works were evil. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And who is Jesus? The light. Hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Because he doesn't want his works that are evil exposed. Doesn't want to have to deal with them. Because he loves them. That's why. John just made the universal statement in verse 20 to be applied to every single human being that has ever walked on the planet earth, is currently walking on the planet earth, or will ever walk on the planet earth. And when the Bible makes a universal statement, we had better perk up and listen. Because John is saying something colossal here. We can't miss the magnitude of here. What does it say in verse 20? Everyone who does wicked things. What do we call a person who does wicked things? A sinner. Now, What about a person who keeps doing wicked things even when the light has exposed them to be wicked? They they know now that this is wrong. We call that an, an unrepentant sinner. Now, according to John, right here in this verse, why do unrepentant sinners not come to the light of Christ? It says in verse 20, they hate him. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light. That's why. They hate him and they love their sin. How many unrepentant sinners does this apply to according to John? Verse 20 says, for everyone. It applies to every unrepentant sinner. I heard earlier this week an interview with R.C. Sproul, and he was talking about this time where this atheist student group at a college invited him to come to their little gathering and kind of debate the reliability of the Bible and a few other things like that. So he came and he made it in a, you know, a, a scholarly defense of the reliability of the Bible that they have these, you know, we have these certain manuscripts and these copies and all these different things. And, and he laid it all out and he did that. And then he said, Hey, I'm happy to keep talking about whatever you guys want to talk about. But before we, we move past this thing that you guys kind of asked me to come and talk about, I just want to lay all my cards on the table. That's what he said he told him. He said, I believe that the Bible uh, says this, that your problem is not that you don't believe that God exists. Your problem is that you know God exists and you hate him. And then the guy interviewing me said, well, what did they want to do after that? He said, well, they wanted to tar and feather me and <laughs> hang me up on a flagpole. But that, he's, that's, that's the truth. You can argue around and around until you're blue in the face, but the reality is, is you know there's a God and you hate him. That's what Roman 1 says. That's what John 3 says. You know there's light, but you hate it and you love the darkness. That's what everybody who's not in Christ, it's the status of all of them. What we need to grasp from the Gospel of John is this idea of what is a biblical idea is total depravity. That people don't remain lost and dead in sin because they had a bad experience at church as a teenager. People, nobody is an unbeliever because science is just too compelling than the Bible. A lack of information or education or understanding of God is not the reason for anyone's position in the darkness. John 3.20 says that they do not come to Jesus because they hate him and they love their sin. This is this concept that everybody does indeed have free will to choose what it is that they love most. That's why anybody makes any decision of all time. I'm doing what I love most, what I want most. But nobody is free on their own to change what it is that they love and want most. That's what John's getting at here. You love and want the darkness. That's what you want. The problem is not that man does not have the ability to make real choices. The problem is that he will never choose the light because the Bible says he hates the light. The problem is not ability. The problem is desire. Left to himself, unregenerate man will never choose Christ because he loves his sin more than he loves Christ. This is what the light does It distinguishes between those who come to the light and those who stay in the darkness. Genesis 1-4, what does it say? God created light and darkness, and he separated them. That's what Jesus does when he comes in as the word made flesh, who was with God and was God. In the beginning, he separates light and darkness. That's what he does. exposes the truth. And this, this separation, this distinguishment is not a bad thing. This is the grace of God. This distinguishing distinguishing and separation is the grace of God. Why is this grace? This is why it's grace. What if nobody ever knew whether or not they were in right standing with their creator, God the Father? What if nobody ever knew whether or not they're there? If nobody knows the truth, then anything could be the truth. Anything could be true. You have no way of knowing. The truth is never a bad thing. And that's what the light does. It exposes what is true. The Truth is never a bad thing. It is a good thing. Think about it like this. If you were a 30-year-old mother of three, would you want the oncologist to tell you the truth about whether or not you had breast cancer? A 30-year-old woman has pretty good odds of fighting and beating Breast cancer, but what if the doctor just came in and said, hey, how do you feel? And she, uh, I feel fine, I guess. Okay. Uh, do you feel cancer-free? Well, I don't know what it's like to have cancer or not, but uh, yeah, I think, yeah, I, I guess I feel cancer-free. Well, then take some vitamins and go have a great day. That, we would never allow that from a doctor. Tell me the truth, no matter how bad it is. So that when Jesus comes and tells us the truth about eternity, that's a good and gracious thing, because here's the key difference. Jesus is not a doctor with limited means and limited technology, just trying to do the best that he can to keep you alive physically. Jesus is God. And he doesn't have to try to do anything. He accomplishes salvation for everyone, eternally, irrevocably, who believes in him so the truth coming in the light shining in the darkness is a good thing now all that being said you get down to the last verse but if you're honest you still have one nagging question left if unrepentant sinners do not come to the light but instead plead to their sin because it says everyone then how is anyone saved because before we were saved, we were all unrepentant sinners, right? That, that's what you were. That's what I was before being saved. So if no unrepentant sinners come to the light but cling to their sin because they love their sin and they hate the light, how is anyone saved? I mean, this is a, this is a real problem. But verse 21 has an answer. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What do we call, look at verse 21, what do we call someone who does what is true or does what is right? What do we call that person? call the person a righteous person, right? They're doing what is right, doing what is true. Now, according to the Bible, are there any people who on their own do what is good, right, and true? Well, let's look at Romans 3.10 to answer that question. None is righteous, Okay, well, no, not one, okay? No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Okay, well, then now we have a problem because how does anyone become to be righteous? How does anyone become, verse 21, doing what is true when no one does what is good? 2 Corinthians five twenty one 21 gives a succinct answer to that. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, when we are in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's how it happens. An exchange takes place. All you have to offer is sin. God puts all that sin on Christ at the cross. All Jesus has is righteousness. God puts that righteousness on you when you believe Sinners can't become righteous on their own because they hate righteousness. God has to do it. That's what verse 21 says. That's who's doing the action so that everybody can tell, it can be plain to everyone, that the works that you're doing have been carried out in God. This is how the CSB translation of the Bible does that verse. It says, but anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light. Why? So that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. God did that. Nobody can say, I am righteous. <laughs> I do what is true, and I walk straight into the light. Nobody can say that. Everybody has to say, God has done it. What did Evan read earlier? Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will complete it to the end. He began it. He completes it. And after he begins it, now we're in power to be able to cooperate with it. But we'll never get to the end of it and say, yeah, I did it. I came into the light. No, God did it. Haven't we already heard this language before in this chapter? Back in verses 3 through 8, Jesus tells Nicodemus that that no one comes into the presence of God, no one comes into his kingdom, no one comes into the light unless he's born again. How does somebody be born again? It's a work of the Spirit. Holy Spirit does that. He is doing that work. Just like the wind, Jesus says, that those branches sure do look like they're moving on their own, but we know that it's wind we can't see blowing them around. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Well, let's pull away some applications from this. First thing that we need to pull away is that we need to understand the nature of man, the nature of human people, because that will eliminate so much strife in our own lives and and give us clarity as we seek to be light in the darkness, that man is in darkness. They They are in the dark, and they love the dark, and they hate the light. And all people are condemned already. They're not neutral. They're they're living in condemnation. They're living under wrath. They're not bound for it. They're in it. And man cannot save himself. We are all impotent to save ourselves. None of us can do it. Second thing we need to pull from this is that we need to understand the nature of God toward man. He loved mankind enough to send his son sent manifestation of the greatest love and that God does have real wrath towards sinners. We have to know that can't run away from that. And we have to know this, that he will save everyone from the penalty of sin who believes everyone who believes will be saved irrevocably from that because it is God's work and we can't undo what God has done. Your sin can't undo what God has done. And the third thing that we need to do is we need to be calling upon people to believe in the name of the only Son of God. And we must do that with urgency because everybody is in the darkness. And if you know Christ, you have been granted exposure in the light, granted exposure eternal citizenship in the kingdom of God. So we must do so with urgency because eternity is on the line. And that ranks higher than politics. That ranks higher than neighborhood dynamics. That ranks higher than whether or not your club baseball team is winning or losing. Eternity is on the line for everyone. And there are only two people, those in the dark, those in the light. And we have the message of hope, the one way to heaven. So don't lose sight of the context, though. In chapter 3, what did it begin with? It began with a man in spiritual darkness coming to Jesus under the cover of physical darkness. And Jesus told him the truth. He exposed Nicodemus' heart as a sinful, self-serving heart. And then he offered him permanent citizenship in the kingdom of light. If he will believe in Him. If you will believe in the name of the only Son of God, and the same is offered to you. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. To find out more, visit us online at tomballbible.church.